Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy and in the studio this morning we've got to say a very good morning to Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill Garden. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everyone. And we've had a bit more rain. <laughs> just a little bit more. Just as, Yeah, it was just right to wake me up at half past four this morning <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, greet me as I was coming down the Eastern Freeway uh, around about, what, half past six, I think. Um, yeah, it's a little bit more rain to add to the rest of the rain, but... Uh, Oh, it's fantastic. It's just, just been amazing, really. The, um, the spring was very dry right through until when? About two weeks back? Or oh, two yes. and a half weeks back? Yes. And, and then a little bit of rain and then that burst a few days ago where we had in the old language six inches mm. over about two and a half days and, and suddenly it all swang around, it all changed. Well, of course, yesterday, um, you know, 32, 30, whatever it got to in the mm. end, you know, and everyone was saying, oh, no, summer's really hit, you know, first day of summer, and now we're in for it. But um, this rain is just fantastic. If we can, because it's soaking in. Yeah, and um, I suppose the other thing I'm thinking is that it's, um, it's doing, it's the same pattern we've had for the last several summers. <laughs> it's just got to keep going. <laughs> It's 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 when you look at the uh, the weather maps, it's rain that's actually coming in from the Timor Sea and across Western Australia and doing that very strange trip, and it's and and Victoria is is suddenly having fairly gentle moist summers at mm. least through until about February at some point, mm. and by golly, um, <laughs> when you look what's happening in the rest of uh, oh, yes. the, uh, the eastern seaboard at the moment, yes. um, well thank goodness for the Timor Sea, I'd. That's right, that's mm. right. Because, I mean, if, if we can go on getting a little bit of rain through till February, yep. then we, we can cope. We've yep, basically exactly. got through the, the exactly. worst of the summer. And, and, and the, our uh, environment expects to dry out in, in the autumn anyway, and the plants cope with that very well. Yeah, but the days have shortened, so it's not yeah. quite so drastic. Yep, yep. yep. So, so it's, it's, yeah. Oh, so good. It's, uh, so well, so I'm feeling slightly more comfortable, and well, I'm feeling a lot more comfortable now than I was feeling a few weeks ago. And uh, I suppose the other thing is just to watch the plants respond to this sort of mm. rain. And um, the, the, you know, the, um, the, the, the garden has just exploded. Uh, the, 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 um, um, the rhododendrons, watching the rhododendrons put on growth, they're just finishing flowering. There's one or two of the last still flowering, the Yukushimanum. But uh, they're, they're still flowering and one or two others. But most are going into new growth. And they're getting this rain just as they're putting on new growth, and so that sets them up for the next year or two. Oh yes. And, and I must say, I, we we actually have quite a few rhododendrons. I prefer in new growth than I than I do in flower. Dare I say? <laughs> <laughs> um, the and going back to the arboreums, they, they're a good example. They're just magnificent uh, for their foliage, mm. and uh, to see them putting on big lush leaves. Um, and I can tell you that in a dry spring, early summer, they put on little shriveled leaves, leaves, and it's very disappointing because that's what you look at for the next 12 months. That's right. Yes, mm. exactly. 
And the hedge is still coming along well after the um, cutback? We're, well, we're just going into hedge clipping right now. We started last week. All right. And uh, so we're busily, so we're, we're a few weeks behind everyone else. So everyone else should have been stuck into their hedges already. Um, just pay attention here. <laughs> and, um, but we started on our box um, uh, uh, last week and we have a pretty strict shed rule. We, we, first of all, we go through and figure out all the, the hedges most exposed to the sun. And um, so our parterres on the main terrace, they're, they're in full sun. And if they're clipped and we have a hot day following the um, the, the foliage that we expose as we clip mm. uh, is is damaged, is bleached. And, and again, that's a problem for the next two or three months. And so it's important that we clip those box hedges during cool weather. Last week, nice and cool throughout <laughs> and ideal. So... Those um, very vulnerable hedges were clipped and then we have a whole series of hedges which are in shady spots or um, or plants which are just a lot tougher anyway, the osmanthus, um, the, some of the camellias, and uh, they can be clipped, um, where the, the weather, they're not so weather dependent as we clip. Yes, yes, mm. yeah, wow. Now, I was, I was really, I don't know how much news you're getting about um about the new declared botanic gardens up there next to you. <laughs> but did you see that, um, that Fleming's best in, in show at Chelsea, their display garden, is going to be recreated? Yes, up now, there. Uh, yes and th- this is something I've, I have to check out because there's... Um, hmm. Ah, yes, this is a sort of interesting little topic and, and just quite how the... The, um, the 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 uh, the Alinda Botanic Gardens or the new Alinda Botanic Gardens, actually the old Rhododendron Gardens, and and just quite how this is going to tie in with the uh, golf course project, mm. and um and and how Bill Johnson's very generous little offer is is going to fit in. I'm I'm not absolutely sure um at the moment and uh, so this is still a, a kind of a moving feast i suppose yeah. well I, I was just curious from a design point of view you can't suddenly plonk a display garden i wouldn't have thought into the middle of, of no. a, a traditional botanic gardens if it's going to end up being a traditional botanic gardens it's 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 a strange move. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I need to check this out. <laughs> that, that was my job for this coming week, actually. Right. <laughs> and um, and the and the the golf course project as well, and and that's um, that's sort of going through. Well, in one way, it's settled, and another way, it's not settled at all. So it's it's um, and. Um, yeah, we're waiting. We're, we're well, rather a few of us are kind of working hard behind the scenes here trying to figure it out. Mm. So have there been any public meetings with local residents in the area or um, it's not up to that stage yeah, yet? Yeah, well, well, well it, it, in a way it is. In a way, yeah. Um, well, um, in a way, what's happening is the uh, there's a football level to go in yes, on, and, right. on the golf course. Right. And um, um, well, there's a there's there's quite a move uh, against that. I can understand <laughs> that. So, so I'm I'm sitting here on on tenterhooks at the moment, just trying to figure out how I sort of thread my way through this argument. <laughs> but uh, but somehow or other, I'm right to, right in the middle of it. So. 
but it's a very, very, very complicated issue, and, mm. and, and it sort of needs a lot more discussions. I feel, and 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 that's the problem. It's it's in a way it's it's already settled. It, in another way, it's not, and so. Um, um, it's it's going to be cash at the moment. It's that one of those situations. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Right. So, yeah. Yes. No, I hadn't realised it had got to that. No, point. no, no. It's 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 kind of come to a grinding halt. Yep. Fair enough. Um, I suppose uh, my feeling about it is that the the um, the Alinda Botanic Gardens uh, have the potential. In one way, they're they're already really important. Oh, I mentioned, I mentioned this. Be, I yes. mentioned this before that yep. the um, there was a survey done of the plants growing in those gardens uh, by Parks Victoria some years back, and they expected that there was going to be lots of hybrids and lots of repetition. In fact, they discovered that the Linda Botanic Gardens contains one of the great <laughs> collections of species and rare species of any collection in the world. Right. It's absolutely world class. Mm. And that was a great surprise. And hats off to uh, Parks Vic. They, they managed to put a little bit of money aside and improve the uh, maintenance of the gardens, starting from about uh, eight, ten years ago, I think yep. it was. Yep. And, and um, that, that's been maintained. Um, but uh, now, they've, now they've done that. Where, where to from here? So... Um, so they, it's going to be more than just a collection of rhododendrons. It's going to be um, um, cool climate plants and moving into rare Australian cool climate plants, oh, alpine okay. plants. Oh, that'll be interesting. And so that's an area that's been um, hived off from the golf course, which will be used for that purpose. Right. Um, so that, that's happening on, on one level. Um, the golf course, of course, sits right next to the um, botanic gardens um, and, and, and has the um, same aspect, I suppose. It, it, and, and, and if you, anyone who knows the geography of the hills, they're, they're volcanic. Um, one of the curious things about the hills is the tops of the ridges are where all the shallow slopes are and all the deep soil is. And the steeper sides, and especially facing um, to the northwest, they tend to be eroded, and quite often the, the, soil, the soil is quite poor. Mm. Um, the Rody Gardens faces more to the northeast, and so the, the soil there is kind of okay for most of the uh, most of its area. But um, but the slopes become quite steep as soon as you get away from the ridges. So that you have shallow slopes at the tops of the ridges, and then steep slopes. Now, the golf course, you have the same problem. Um, and um, so what I am suggesting is that somehow these two areas be uh, linked and we set up a circuit and, 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 um, um, and, and somehow we, we, we provide incentive for people to walk down to the lower parts of the golf course um, and and then they can cross into the Pentagonic Gardens and um, and see that area which hardly anyone ever visits because it's too far down the darn slope. Yes, right, right. <laughs> when you think it's actually the problem with all the gardens in the uh, uh, in the Dandongs and including Cloud Hill, I might add, um, it's it's really difficult to persuade people to enter a garden at the highest point and walk down into it. Mm. It's exactly the opposite to what people want to do. 
Um, I can give you a lecture actually on Italian Renaissance gardens <laughs> and, 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 and uh, um, those magnificent gardens, the Tivoli Hills, east of Rome and around Florence they were making in the 1560s, 1580s and, and uh, they were generally made by, well they were all made by bankers or cardinals of the Roman Catholic yes, Church. Yes, yes. <laughs> Trying to show people, off people, their power and wealth. Yeah, people with access to huge amounts of money yes. uh, by the standards of the time. Uh, they, they, they were the billionaires. And um, and so they would build their villa at the top of the ridge. They, they were, they, you know, this is a hilly landscape. They'd build their villa at the top of the, the, the ridge. Uh, the garden would run out below the villa in a series of terraces. And visitors would would arrive, walk into the garden at the lowest point, and walk up through the garden in a, through a series of through a series of gardens, and and each one becoming more splendiferous on the way up until you reach the villa. Exactly. And, and you turn around, and there's this magnificent view, and the garden spread out below. Yep. Which works. Yeah. It works very well. Yeah, the logic of it is perfect. Yeah, because, I mean, as you enter the garden at the lowest end, you are looking up to this amazing house and you're just seeing this whole magnificence opened up in front of your eyes and then then this massive incentive to make your way up towards that. And, of course, of course, they always ran water. From the top. Absolutely. They would pinch all the farmers, the, the, all, the, right. all the water supplies from the local area and then run it down through the, uh, this garden in a series of fountains. Exactly. And especially in the Tivoli Hills that was happening. And, and, uh, and then, then it would be given back to the community, but only, you know, at the bottom Once of the it's hill. Once done yep. its job. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't wasted, I suppose. It just would have been extremely irritating for the poor old cockies in the middle who, oh, yes. who suddenly lost all their water. Yep. But, uh, you know, that's a problem if you've got the cardinal running the, ruling the roost. They can just do what they want. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now what happened is that over the hundreds of years uh, from the 1600s onwards, well, um, the, the guns tend to be reversed in how they were used. So people would tend to, as they built roads at the tops of the ridges, uh, people would arrive at the top of the, uh, arrive at the villa first and then, then have to walk down through the garden. And it never quite made sense. And there's a big move in Italy now, 400 years on, to reverse the, to, to restore the original flow of those gardens mm. so that you walk up through them. Mm. Now the problem with the dandelions is that all the ridges, all the roads run right along the along tops of the, the ridges. Top. Absolutely right. no along the top to of the, the ridges and everything flows out from the tops of the ridges. Yep. And, um, I, I was aware of this from day one when we began making Cloud Hill. So what did we do about it? Um, I thought long and hard about it. We, 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 I, I knew the property from, for about two years. Um, I never thought we'd have the chance to make the garden there, but I was, after Jim Moorich died in 91, his, um, a relative of his approached me several months later and said, um, no one in the family wants to take the place on. And you were looking for a block of land. You're still looking for a block of land. Now, we were kind of doing something else by that stage, but we dropped out and went back to Plan A. Um, you know, this, this dream, I suppose. <clears throat> but I'd still had about three, three months or so to try and figure out what we were going to do. And, um, and, and very aware of this problem, walking down into a garden. How do you do it? How do you encourage people to walk down into a garden? 
Um, so, um, if you look, if you arrive at Cloud Hill, well, this one flight steps down to the first level, and that's where we have a little water feature, and, and there's a little tinkle water just around the corner, which hopefully people hear as they're walking down the steps to encourage, to encourage them down the steps. And then the, um, the, that terrace runs out, that, that's off to the left. The terrace actually runs off to the right. And we make that as, as, as resounding as possible. So that's why we have the warm waters be, uh, that begin right at that point. Um, and then beyond that we have our two maples, two, two of the finest weeping maples to be seen anywhere. Mm. And then off in the distance, and to accentuate that sense of distance, we have the cool borders and finding a little bit of architecture right off in the distance. We try and stretch that out and telescope that, that terrace out as much as possible. So the idea is that people walk down to that level, figure out the, the water feature on the left-hand side, and then turn around to the right and walk all the way down that terrace and admiring things as they go. And they reach the little bit of architecture, the little summer house we have, and then they have a choice. They've either got a really steep climb up <laughs> to the next level, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which people sort of look at three or four times before they decide what to do, or they can walk to the left and down the slope again. And we try and make that as intriguing as possible. So in the last couple of years, especially, I've been improving the planting there. The whole thing is to encourage people down to the bottom of the garden. Mm. And when you think about it, uh, I shudder to think how many dollars were thrown into <laughs> solving that problem. And, and now, so that, that's what we've been doing. We've spent years and years trying to figure this problem out. Now, the, the, the gardens, the other gardens in the hills, um, well, generally they were originally owned by private individuals. And they had a little track and they built their house halfway down and they kind of ignored the whole thing. Yes, right. And so the sad thing is that um, the, the, those gardens, they, they were willed to the people of Victoria, and you know, which what gardens am I talking about? I'm talking about Periander and um, the George um, uh, Tyndale yeah. Memorial yeah. Gardens, and they are they are magnificent gardens. The, the Periander is a magnificent collection of rare rhododendrons. The Tyndales were two of the people who helped what's now the Alinda Botanic Gardens actually put together that incredible collection of rhododendrons. Mm. So the, um, um, the Tyndales and, and the Ansels, so, so, well, the Ansels at Periander and the Tyndales at um, the, the, um, those particular gardens, both, uh, both families were heavily involved in putting together that collection of rhododendrons that we enjoy now. Mm. And part of a whole group of enthusiasts from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but their gardens, um, well, I feel they're highly neglected nowadays, <laughs> simply because they haven't really managed to solve this problem yes. of um, people walking down into a, an area. Yes, right. So that's 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 my feeling. The, the, the Brody Gardens, uh, the, sorry, the, the, the Olinda Botanic Gardens, get my <laughs> names right. Um, has this problem as well and um, so the top part of the garden is much more heavily used than the bottom half mm. and, um, and, the, and the golf course area likewise that, that's the big difficulty mm. so how do we solve that so, that, so that's what 
I had a little group, big a little group at the moment, busily beavering away, trying to figure out. Right. <laughs> uh, so we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but I'm hoping that we can set up, connect them, connect those two. The, the, the golf course is one of the most magnificent pieces of land I know. Um, anywhere in Victoria, mm. it is outstanding. As a golf course, it never quite worked. Have, did you ever play a game of golf on it? No. No. <laughs> I walked around with my father once. Okay. I, I don't play golf. I walked around with my father once years back when he was uh, uh, back in the nineties, and he was uh, he enjoyed his golf. Um, three times he hit a golf ball, landed on the fairway, and because of the slope of the fairway off to either one direction or the other, the ball never stopped. It just oh. kept rolling and ended up in the in the forest. How uh, frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> He lost three balls. Oh. So, I mean, just literally watched them just Roll toodle off, off <laughs> down the mountainside. Oh dear! Yeah, golf courses don't really work on the on the side of a mountain. Yes. So it was always a very strange course, and the people who played it all the time had their strategies to make sure they weren't losing balls. But I can say that there were two or three young kids who made a good living running around <laughs> collecting balls from the forest yes. and retrieving them and selling them back to the golfers. I can imagine. Very cranky golfers. <laughs> yes. So anyway, the, the golf course, um, stopped being a golf course several years ago. The golfers all gave up in disgust and went off to proper courses. But it's a magnificent piece of land. Mm. The, the, uh, when it was planted out, when it was set up as a golf course, the fairways were set out with, with rows of, well, deciduous trees. Now, a uh, little subtext here. The golf course is actually a fuel barrier. It's a fire buffer. Right. Uh, it has to be kept open and the trees have to be um, reasonably non-flammable. Yep. And they planted deciduous trees. Okay. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't yes, it? Yes, it this is. is. This is 50 years ago. <laughs> okay. Yeah, back in the days when they did such things. Um, and likewise, the RJ Hamer Arboretum just yes. around the, the slope. That, that's likewise a fuel buffer. Okay. Covered with trees, they're, they're low, uh, generally speaking, they're, they're non-flammable trees. Um, but when the golf course was planted out, these rows of trees, well, whoever's designed it, and I have no idea who it was, they, they, they lined up the rows of trees with views. And there are several of the best views in Victoria from the golf course. Wow. And the, and the trees at the top of the hill act as a framing device for these views. Okay. Yeah. So, so I you must know, have a walk around. Yeah, it. you must. Yes, I must. Yeah, it's, it's just an extraordinary piece of land. So, so anyway, the idea of just flattening it all for, for, a, for a sporting ground, I think it's a little bit disappointing. Oh. It's not, not, not the ideal use for the area. No, it's not. Um, there, is, there are compromises there so that there are problems with, with lack of sporting facilities. But, but we don't need to level the top of the mountain to, no. to solve that problem. Yep. So, oh. so what I'm trying to figure out is how we set up a circuit to encourage people down the slope mm. and use the entire area. Mm. It's, it is absolutely magnificent, and there are and, and the potential for this area is just incredible. The potential for both the um, the old golf course and, uh, and the, the, for this to actually improve the Usage and the visitations to the the Linda Botanic Gardens, so I think, is the way forward. Yep. 
So, sure. so, so we'll see. We'll watch see. Watch this space. Watch this space. It's uh, it's 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 becoming a big argument. Yes, right. Well, that's understandable. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, definitely a work in progress. Yep. <laughs> Jeremy, we should we should talk about events because um of course summertime is when uh, Cloud Hill opens its its gates to lots of wonderful events in the garden. And I see first up, you've got Ozak coming back into the garden. Yeah, well, um, over the last couple of years, we've become a little bit more ambitious with what we've been doing uh, with our Twilight events. We've had Ozact um, putting on Shakespeare for many years, and that's always worked extremely well, uh, generally in January. This year, uh, last year, we moved to December, between Christmas and New Year, Worked out well for their schedule because Ozact are moving all over Victoria and mm. putting on shows uh, at various parts of Victoria weekend by weekend for all through summer. And anyway, that worked very well for us. And this year they're, they're coming to Cloud Hill and putting on Much Ado. <laughs> Which would be great fun. <laughs> yeah, the story of my life. <laughs> and and, uh, and that's, that's happening the last weekend of December. So it's happening on the last Friday and Saturday, which is the 28th and 29th of December. Um, now, for anyone who's not... Uh, um, uh, it's not had a, a visit of the gardens or, or it's not um, attended one of the twilight... Uh, recitals or performances Cloud Hill is based around a theatre Dare I go back to Italian Gardens <laughs> <laughs> Italian Gardens always had theatres in the oh, new set yeah. And the Italian Gardens uh, were the precursors to the Arts and Crafts Gardens And uh, yeah, I, my, my suspicion is where did the Arts and Crafts Gardens come from? I think it came out of the railways the, uh, they, they, they were whacking railways up all around Europe but back in the 1860s, 1870s, and lots of middle-class English families were suddenly had the chance to go to Italy. Uh, other, you know, otherwise, people like Lord Byron and Shelley <laughs> went to Italy, and hardly anyone else. Yeah. But um, but suddenly, um, uh, just ordinary people could go to Italy, and and they they were seeing these incredible gardens built 400 years earlier, and um, and they. They took the idea of a garden with lots of structure um, back to England, and, and, and on a slightly flatter landscape, they 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 planted their hedges and they set out their compartments, and and then what? Uh, lots of sunshine. Um, in Italy, of course, these gardens were 400 years old and full of trees and very shady, and there were no flowers in them um, in the 19th century. Um, but the um, English took that, that idea back to uh, back home and um, cottage plants just down the road. Uh, they filled up these compartments with cottage plants. Of course. Yep. And so that and the, and the first and the, and the two things go together: the invention of the railway, and then a few years later, the invention of the herbaceous border. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, Anyway, um, the, the, uh, those Italian gardens always had theatres in them. They, they had big spaces. They're quite, quite elaborate, these, these gardens. They had big spaces for community events, for family events. Mm. And why the cardinals needed um, theatres uh, for their family to spe- celebrate well- weddings, you kind of wonder at. But, uh, but that's what happened. Um, they, they, you know, they were busily manoeuvring their family into various positions in the in the church, <laughs> and um, 
and you go through these gardens today, they, they, they have um, theatres and there's a connection with the Commedia Delato troops, which appeared in Italy at the same time. Now, the Arts and Crafts Gardens, the best example of an Arts and Crafts Garden with a theatre is Hitkit. Um, Sissinghurst and Tintinholu. Sissinghurst, in a way, also has, has... It's very theatrical, but it doesn't, technically speaking, have a theatre. But mm. Hitkit, it does have a theatre. I right. mean, um, Lawrence Johnston, Major Johnston, when he was setting out Hitkit. Now, Hitkit's in the... Um, in Gloucestershire, in, in the edge of the Cotswold Hills, and it's right at the top of the hill. And uh, and it's a classic arts and crafts garden made in right in the the height of the period in which these gardens were being made. In the I think it began in about 1907. It was made during the First World War. Major Johnson, he was actually on the Western Front <laughs> during the war. Um, uh, he, he got caught in, 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 in a, well, rather, um, he was involved in one of the big pushes and, and, um, was severely injured to the point that, um, he, um, uh, his, a friend of his, um, walking through a morgue back behind the lines spotted <laughs> Major Johnston laid out in a morgue. Oh. And it was, it was very, Shocked to see his friend there, and and also rather surprised to see that he wasn't actually dead. Right. <laughs> he was still alive, oh, <laughs> lying in the morgue, yeah. uh, breathing, yeah. and rescued him from the morgue. And oh. and uh, so Johnston went. Uh, uh, he was given a leave of absence to get his act back together. <laughs> went back to England and carried on making a section of the garden right in the middle of the First World War. Goodness. And. Um, so, and and Hickett is, I must admit, it's 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 one of the most inspirational gardens in terms of what we've been doing at Cloud Hill. There's nothing copied. That's not quite right. <laughs> we we did copy our our warm borders are exactly the same dimensions as as the red borders at Hickett. <laughs> down to about half a metre or so. <laughs> right. No one's going to go and measure that. No, Jeremy. no. Um, but um, but you you walk into um, Hidcote and, and walk along the main terrace and then there's paths cross paths and um, and you you don't tend to see the theatre Im- uh, immediately but uh, but the cross paths sort of gently head you in that direction and suddenly there's this magnificent open space and if you look at the and you walk around the entire garden and and first of all you tend to notice that the axes all run out to the edge of the hill and in every direction there are these magnificent views and each view is different because mm. you're looking in a completely different direction. Yes, it's right. It's at the top of the hill. There are magnificent views, 360 degrees from Hidkit and, uh, and the, the garden really makes fabulous use of three of those views at, at least. Um, and um, But right in the middle of the garden is this big open area which happens to be right at the top of the hill, and the highest point of, of the theatre is actually the stage. And so you, you can kind of see that as poor old Johnson was lying in his hospital bed in, 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 the, in the middle of World War One, and, 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 and trying not to think about the, the Western Front and thinking about his garden instead, he, he, he had a little time to really make the most of that location. Mm. 
Yes. <laughs> Quite a bit happening here, isn't there? There is. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to Ozak. Oh, yeah, that's, that's where we started, I was at. Yeah, so, um, well, um, they're putting on much to do. And, um, uh, and, and I should and, add, and you've got a wonderful theatre in your garden. Yeah, and ours is quite a small theatre. It's a, just a simple circle of uh, grass, gentle slope on it. But we planted beach hedge around it, which is nice and circular. And that, that was just meant to be a simple shape. Um, um, well, in fact, it was almost the only shape we could make. Um, <laughs> the, after we built the terrace, the, um, um, uh, several, well, about 12 months later, we got our earth-moving machine back again to try and make the most of this, the area below the, the terrace. And, um, and I must admit that the plan I'd drawn was not the plan we ended up with. Okay. I think there's quite a lot to be said for a bit of spontaneity when you're working with a landscape which already has quite a bit of trees, shrubs, rhododendrons already there. You, yep. you just you can put something on paper, some of it down on paper, but often it's good just to work with a big machine and 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 figure it out on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, work out the uh, see what where the root systems are of the plants. Make sure that you're not upsetting root systems. So that's what that's why the circle is is that particular shape. And right. And that, those particular dimensions, it's about 25 metres in diameter. And there's a little um, area at the bottom which we could push out which, where we put the stage. Mm. So it's a very simple, mm. uh, stylized outdoor theatre. But <laughs> it's meant to be just architecture. But, of course, somehow we had a family wedding and while we were having that wedding over a weekend, we, we had several wedding inquiries, so we started doing weddings, and then we went on from there, and 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 um, and various events. Andrew McGregor, who, who was a keen Shakuhachi player, was uh, he helped us in the. He was actually his, uh, he uh, was actually someone. Uh, his business then involved. Um, Testing soils, and so he's testing our soils to figure out how high our retaining walls could be. And while he's doing this, he said, "I played this thing called the shakuhachi. It's a, it's really just a bit of bamboo, and it's, and you know, I could come along and do a bit of busking." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that led to one of our first twilight events, yes. and, and um, we've been doing them ever since the mid nineties. Fantastic. So, so the Oz Act um, crew, uh, uh, well. I've lost track now, but I think they've been coming for about 12, 14 years. Um, and so uh, people bring along picnics and bottles of wine and fold-up chairs, please. <laughs> and um, and they um, and we run those events from about um, half past six through to half past eight. We used up the twilight. Yes. And so we just checked to see... Um, what the, the light conditions are for the night and, and we literally start the start can vary by about 20 minutes depending on the mm. light conditions too so the idea is to pack a picnic and mm. go in early yep yep yeah so people we actually keep the, the gates open after five and people um, have an, uh, an hour or two to enjoy their picnic and enjoy the gardens and that, and that low light is always the best time to walk around and see a garden and um, and then sit back and enjoy the show. Fantastic. Yep. 
So just to repeat, that's uh, Friday the 28th, Saturday the 29th of December. Yep, and that's really just the beginning of a whole series of pretty ambitious events. Uh, A huge series. Yeah, look, we we got carried away because (laughs) last year we we had some opera singers and that was just incredible. (laughs) So this year we have opera singers again on the 26th of January. Yes, Uh, and these are artists from uh, Melbourne, Melbourne Opera Trust. Yep, that's right. Um, the Melbourne Opera Trust uh, is a group that specialises in promoting the careers of young singers. And, of course, Nellie Melba, uh, strong associations locally. Her dad had this, it was Mr Mitchell, and he had a quarry, didn't he? And he sold and, and, and some of our crushed limestone toppings, uh, courtesy of, of the quarry that uh, Nellie Melba's dad originally established, <laughs> which only closed a couple of years ago. Right. Uh, so it was running for a long time. And, uh, of course, Coombe Cottage out in the Yarra Valley, has, yes. has been a, that's been a huge development, uh, um, getting, uh, oh, setting that up. So they've done a wonderful job restoring that. Oh, wow, yeah. And, and um, so we have uh, the, um, the Melbourne Opera Trust putting on Nelly in her own right on January the 26th. Now, that, that's pretty handy too because... It's strongly arguable that Nellie Melba is is the most famous Australian who has ever lived and ever will live for a long time because she was the great opera star of her generation. That's right. At a time when people took opera really, really seriously mm. in many places around the world. You mm. go to the middle of the Amazon and there's a, well, you find an opera house <laughs> right on the banks of the Amazon, um, in the deepest, darkest Amazonia. And um, and so opera is always uh, it's always appealed. Um, so anyway, we we have um, uh, the, uh, several singers putting on a show uh, which are Nellie Melba's favourite arias. Okay. Mm, so that's the logic of it. That's but it happens time. to be on Australia Day on the twenty sixth, which is perfect timing. Yep. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's, so that's nice. Yes. No. That's that's lovely. Um, I should just uh, pause to remind listeners, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. If you'd like to uh, jump on the, uh, on the phone and ask uh, a gardening question or ask Jeremy more about um, Cloud Hill and some of these events, do give us a call. The number is 94190155 um, to speak to Doug or if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. So uh, you've got a couple of other groups coming back that you've Evergreen Ensemble with yep. their last year. Yeah, Evergreen Ensemble and Latitude 37. Yep. And um, I guess Latitude 37 are better known, but in fact they're very similar groups but um, doing slightly different things. They're both groups made up of members of the Pinchgutter Opera. Mm. And the Pinchgutter Opera is right in the news at the moment. Oh, they're it that, is. That big... Um, um, huge production, uh, a huge in production in Sydney right yep. at the moment. So everyone's busy there. there there's actually over a hundred musicians that are part of, the, part of that loose group, and they're all um, uh, musicians interested in in um, period instruments, mm. early music, yes. uh, baroque and pre-baroque. And the Evergreen Ensemble um, are um, uh, well playing. Um, um, period instruments, instruments often two or three hundred years old. 
um, and 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 um, and set up as they were originally meant to be played. That is the main thing. And uh, their particular interest is the, um, if you like, popular baroque of the time, rather than the so so the sort of music that if you'd uh, had a, a, little, a, a medium-sized manor house in the middle of Scotland somewhere that. Uh, and they, they were pretty serious about their music uh, mm. in such places, well, Scandinavia think, and Brittany, and 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 there were composers working yep. for uh, producing music for yep. people uh, to play at, at such gatherings, yep. and they they weren't big affairs, they weren't the aristocracy, they were just the ordinary people, but serious, but but people just who really enjoyed their music. Mm, mm. Mm. Well, I think last year, um, Evergreen Ensemble concentrated on the music of the Scottish Highlands. Yeah, that's right, and, and, th- th- and this year it's Brittany. It's Brittany, which yep. would be fantastic. I, I uh, There was a guy called Alan Stavell, in fact he's still kicking on, but uh, back in the 70s he released a... Uh, an amazing record, a good old 33 RPM, um, called Celtic Harp Renaissance, which wow. absolutely broke every record for that type of music. Well, it was seriously, it was just selling extremely well mm. uh, in the middle of, of you know, uh, everything else that was happening in the 70s. Uh, and, and, and there was Celtic Harp, uh, but, but other instruments as well. But he played the harp and, and it was, and he was, Rediscovering the uh, the traditional music of Brittany. Now, Brittany is part of the Celtic fringe. Uh, it's the northwest corner of France, but it's but it's strongly connected with Cornwall, with with Wales, with Scotland and Ireland, mm. and the and the Breton language. Um, well, it's a bit like Wales. Uh, the French did; they were doing their darndest to, to to get rid of it <laughs> uh, back in the late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. But the, the Bretons sort of carried on with their speaking Breton, and um, and the, and their music survived too. In a, and and but but um, Alan Bell was going back and and introducing this. Um, well, the, the, he, he was uh, getting this across to a much wider audience, and um, now there are one or two members of the um, Evergreen Ensemble who actually have worked with Alan Stavell. Okay, yeah. wow! And so this year we're concentrating on some of that music, mm. and it, if anyone remembers Celtic Harp Renaissance, so this is going to be quite a special night. Oh, gosh, yes. I, yes. I might say we've been working on this for two or three years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Me dropping hints furiously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, it should be wonderful. So both both Evergreen Ensemble and Latitude 37. Yeah, Latitude 37. Both. Yep, Latitude 37 are much, uh, uh, again, a rock group. Yes. And playing impaired instruments um, and... and, and um, you know, serious, serious musicians, but have a lot of fun with what they're doing. And so, um, anyone interested in uh, the music of uh, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, both of these events will be quite mm. special. Mm. So they're both taking place in February. Yeah, February. Uh, they're, they're two weeks apart. So um, I've got ninth for um, Evergreen Ensemble. And uh, 23rd for um, Latitude. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, well, I've got it in front of me. I've <laughs> <laughs> been me, me trying to find my notes and I can't remember <laughs> now. But, it, but it's every two weeks. And, 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 and two weeks on from that, we have Riley Lee. 
and you going could, back uh, to your first roof and, and, and another yeah, shakuhachi. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Well, Riley Lee uh, is arguably the highlight of the whole series because he is um, uh, arguably the, the world's leading shakuhachi player outside Japan. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> uh, he's in um, uh, Stanford University at the moment doing a. Uh, artist in residence thing okay. at Stanford. Right. So I was emailing him backwards and forwards for quite a while a few weeks ago and anyway, managed to drag him away from America or, or and Sydney. He's, he's based in Sydney actually. Okay. So, so, uh, so he's coming to Melbourne and, and putting on a show as in March. Yes. In March the 9th, ninth, I think it is. The yeah. ninth, yes. So the Shakuhachi is a Japanese bamboo flute. And um, oh well, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an amazing instrument. It does sound like a conventional flute, except it's it's a very basic instrument, and 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 it's and it's to play it. Well, what does one say? They, they, it was some, it was developed by Zen Buddhist monks several hundred years ago to aid breathing exercises during meditation. Okay. Yep. And the, the the complications of playing this instrument are such that you can understand the logic of that. Mm, totally. Now, having said all that, what do, what, do you, what do you end up with is this amazing instrument playing this incredible music, which just works so well in the open air. And the flute in the open is 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 is, is ethereal. It's haunting. Yeah, and and. The shakuhachi versus the conventional flute, it's a much breathier, a much yes. more, it's got a lot more character to it. Yeah. It's diabolically difficult to play. We, we had Andrew playing two or three, um, recitals. He, he, one of our, one of the great recitals we ever had was he and Miho Yamaji uh, from Japan. She was playing a kolto. That was incredible. Mm. They used us as a warm up. Uh, recital and then they went on touring Australia um, at uh, concert halls all around Australia. I think you'll have to offer a cloud heel for warm ups for lots of groups. <laughs> <laughs> what an uh, ideal way yeah, of getting so, music. Uh, so anyway, uh, the, the, uh, it was pointed out to me that um, Riley Lee um, was the, he was the closing act of the Sydney Millennium celebrations. So, the year the the uh, the, uh, the calendars ticked over onto the millennium and that huge firework display in Sydney and of course they, 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 there was the Olympic Games as well but there was a huge firework display in Sydney all around the harbour and as the fireworks settled down uh, there was the note of the Shakuhachi which was picked up and broadcast right across the harbour and there was Riley Lee City on top of the Sydney Opera House. Good yeah, so that, so that, that was wow. the year 2000. Yep. Um, so he's an interesting bloke and oh, it, yes. it'll be fun to come along and Wonderful see what, he, what show he puts on for us in, in March. Absolutely. So, Jeremy, how do people book for any of these events? They're all on Try Booking. They're all on our website. So you go to the website and figure them out and then go to Try Booking and it's um, easy as falling off a log nowadays. And the website? Again, you better get yeah, that Yeah, Cloud out. Hill. Just, just Google Cloud Hill. And, and it'll all and, come and, up. Yeah, it all comes up. Yep. And, and uh, Cloud Hill and then go to Events. 
and uh, there it all is. Okay, hmm. okay. Um, now, one announcement. I don't have, uh, would you believe, um, I don't have any community announcements. Everyone is, <laughs> suddenly we, we were so busy with community announcements over the last month, six weeks, with so much happening during springtime, and suddenly everyone's realised, oh, it's December, Christmas is coming, um, it's time we stopped. <laughs> so everyone's come to a full stop. But um, one thing I will mention is that um, 3CR have got their annual wine fundraiser on again. Now, this is a chance to uh, support 3CR and also to uh, buy some uh, some wine uh, ready for Christmas. So um, there is uh, um, a choice of Shiraz, Pinot Noir, Pinot Grigio and Chardonnay. Now, that selection of four wines are $15 a bottle or cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. And if you'd like to uh, put in an order, you can either go online to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or you can phone the station on 94198377 and then that order can be picked up from the uh, the 3CR office here at 21 Smith Street in uh, Fitzroy um before Christmas so uh, just be aware that uh, if you if you are after some um some wine very reasonably priced for Christmas um you'd be supporting 3CR as well and doing us all a favor the other um, announcement I really must um, uh, get to is that we do have um, a vacancy for a volunteer for next year to, uh, to come in and be trained and do our uh, help with our phone line. So um, we're part of a, a team. Um, each week uh, we have two volunteers working the phones, one putting the calls through to us here on air, the other one uh, fielding uh, calls out on the outside line. So, as I say, next year we do have one opening for um, a volunteer who would be interested in, uh, in learning the phones and coming in once a month to be part of a, a two-person team. Um, we would love to welcome you aboard. Uh, if you are interested, do, uh, do call Doug now. The number is 9419 0155 and give Doug your uh, contact details and I will get back to you um, after the program because uh, we have a lot of fun in here. We're all volunteers. None of us get paid a cent but we love doing what we do and, uh, you know, we're part of a a great team and, as I say, we have lots of fun. So if you'd be at all interested, um, do give Doug a call on 9419 0155. Jeremy, I, I, I was looking at your website and, and you, you send out a newsletter um, every so often yep. and there was a photo that really captured my attention because um, so many people love hostas but can't grow them and you have got the most wonderful display of hostas at the moment up in the garden. The, the, this season has just been ideal for them really. Um, and, because and, of the and, moisture? And, yeah, the moisture. And although in our case, uh, we, we put aside a little shady corner for woodlanders. Yes. And um, I was always keen to try a few. Um, and gradually over the years, I've built up a little bit of a collection. Tempo 2, back in the day, uh, used to be importing them. And um, they, they had 
they had a pretty big um, catalogue of them. Right. Um, now, that collection was dispersed about uh, five or six years ago. And um, I remember Don Teese uh, went along and he... he Grabbed a few, and then then I sort of followed hard on his heels and grabbed a few as well, and, uh, and so we've had this collection, which uh, originally were tiny little plants, and uh, I've been building them up over the last um, four years or so, potting them up into big pots, and of course they worked pretty well in pots, mm. and really just to try and figure out what on earth they were. There's, there's quite a bit of repetition with hostas. They're, they're one of those plants uh, like daylilies and iris that the Americans got into, and um, they're extremely good in um, the Midwest of the US. Hmm, something to do with snails, and, and then and the very cold temperatures in the Midwest of the US in the winter, which the snails... Um, well, there are no snails in the Midwest of the US. <laughs> something to do with the fact that temperature goes down to minus something awful okay. in the winter. And the hostas, uh, that's their one weakness, snails. Snails love them, don't yeah, they? Yeah, snails love them. So, so how do you cope but, but, with but that? But we, uh, well, well, keeping them all together, I think, is, is, uh, is a secret. You give them and, a smorgasbord and, and, and they don't know where to start. <laughs> well, it's partly that. And, and uh, what we're discovering is some of the newer varieties are pretty snail resistant too. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to have to do a bit of culling, and, and the, and the, but at the moment you walk around and you see most of them, are, uh, well, about half of them are not touched. And wow. then there's two or three which are just massacred. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so just ignore those. Uh, but, um, but, uh, but of course, these big plants, we, uh, uh, at the beginning of this season, we, we started whacking these in and filling in gaps, and I just couldn't stop. <laughs> so, so we have a fair... And the other thing is we have a pretty big collection of pots, and this is a bit of a uh, doffing of the cap to uh, Great Dixter. And uh, for those people fortunate enough to see Great Dixter in, in England, um, uh, Christopher Lloyd's old garden, uh, over the years, that uh, Chris, uh, well, the garden's made around an old 13th slash 14th century manor house. In fact, a couple of manor houses squished together. And uh, but this this lovely old alcove, um, which um, Christopher Lloyd and his gardeners got into the habit of, well, they had all these lovely plants in pots around the back, which for the same reason as I do, you you just grow them to see how they 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 they're looking, and you and to pop them into gaps here and there. Mm. But the plants in pots themselves become rather a, a feature, and, and they got into the habit of making a bit of a display at the front of the alcove that became more and more and more elaborate over the years. <laughs> and, I, and the last couple of times I've been to Great Dexter, I've just been absolutely bowled over by this, what, a collection of, what, 40, 50 pots? Yeah. Which I understand wow. they rearrange every two or three days. Oh, good heavens. And so, amazing collection of plants, and, 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 and it, it's just a giant... Well, what would you call it? A, 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 uh, well, it's, well, for any horticulturalist, it's just, just a treat to <laughs> see these incredible plants all carefully positioned uh, to to contrast with each other. Mm. And 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 uh, anyway, so that's really what we've been doing. Except in our case, we don't have the. We have five or six or seven people running around the garden maintaining it. So we, in our case, what we do is use a. The, a collection of pots, and the pots are going to be interesting in their own right, um, because the hostas go down in the winter, and then the, the pots themselves are got to um, warrant 
their spot in the garden just purely as an empty pot. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes, the, yes. Yeah, the rest of the garden becomes wintry. The garden uh, depends on its architecture in the winter. You know, that, that's a test for a garden, walk around oh, in, yes, in, in June. Oh, yes, in winter. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what I tell people. Um, when's the best time to say the garden? question comes up all the time. Oh, come in June. <laughs> there's no flowers. There's nothing to see but the architecture. We've gone to a really lot of trouble with our architecture. <laughs> so anyway, uh, some people do. But the hostas um, come up in, in September, October, depending on the variety, and they fill up these pots. Now, a hosta in the pot is much easier to look after than a hosta in the ground in a way. So that's most probably the best thing for most people. Mm. And the beauty of them is that they're so shade tolerant is that, that uh, you can have a little collection of hostas, say five or six, and you can keep one permanently inside. Uh, and I'll say permanently, you have to rotate them. So you, you bring a pot inside for four or five days, pop it back again, one or the other of that collection inside for four or five days, just rotate them, yep. and they can tolerate uh, living inside for four or five days once every two or three weeks okay. to the summer. Right. Yeah, they, 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 that's shade tolerant. Um, and also you can wrap a little bit of copper around a pot and that, that, that helps deter snails and yes. slugs. Yes, I found that does work really well. Yep. Yep, and, and, and generally we, um, as long as you make sure that the plant hasn't grown a leaf which is uh, leaning on something else and the snail can pole vault across, yes, so to speak. You've got to think about access. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah, the hostas. They... We've, we've, I guess we've got a collection of about 60 or so yes. in that, that little group. Yes. Uh, and quite a bit of variety in, uh, you know. It's the colours that yeah. I found so stunning in, in having that whole mass, but, but there's, there's so many different shades of green. Yeah, there's so many blue different, greens yeah. and there's. Yep, the, the, yeah, there's, there's, exactly right. There's, mm. there's, um, they're, they're grown almost entirely for their foliage. There are one or two that have reasonable flowers, and the flowers, uh, the, the little spikes of lavender flowers are, um, a, 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 a little bit of fun, but uh, but uh, you don't grow them for their flowers. No, no. Um, there's one or two that have perfume white flowers, which are worthwhile, but uh, they're foliage effects. Oh, and, definitely. And, and um, um, I can see why the the Americans have, uh, uh, treat them with such reverence mm. and enthusiasm, mm, mm. Um, and they're great fun. Do they need much water, Jeremy? Um, the funny thing is, I find they're quite drought tolerant. Really? <laughs> yeah, and the odd thing is, that they come. That surprises me. Yeah, and, and especially when you look at where they grow in their natural habitat, generally on the edge of streams. Yes. And in and, and, and very boggy soils. Well, rather on the edge, they're off to the edge of, of quite wet areas. And yet, I've, yeah, we've experimented with uh, leaving them without water for. Uh, and, and certainly in the in the nursery, I find that I can, uh, you know, the, 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 the pots of hostas can go for two or three days at a time without water, whereas um, uh, 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 otherwise we're watering every plant every day. Yes, right. Um, I did experiment. In fact, our neighbour has a few halfway down her garden which she planted and they're really watered. Mm. They, they rely on natural rainfall. Okay. So it's interesting. Yeah. The other plants we're using with these uh, epimediums, and they're very drought tolerant, uh, pretty well uniformly. Mm. And again, a plant which arguably 
Well, they, they do have very handsome little flowers in the spring, but the best ones all have beautiful foliage uh, throughout the summer. And um, many of them are actually evergreen and they develop interesting tints in the winter as well. Yes. And the only thing they demand is shade. And happy with root infested soil and, and, um, and those uh, are, are seriously drought tolerant. Mm. All mm. of them, as far as I can figure out. Fantastic. We must get to a couple of callers. First up, we have uh, Jill from the Herb Society. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Pam and Jeremy. Good morning. Oh, that was fascinating about hostas. I had my angel's trumpets were bitten last year when the rain came, and so now I call them lacy uh, brugmans here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Your hostas, you'll have to say that's a variety of lacy hosta. (laughs) Um, I'm just ringing to tell you that on Thursday night, the 6th of December, this coming Thursday... 7.15 7.15 at Burnley in room 10, come in a steel ramp on the main building, the cream building. Um, we're having a quiz night on plants and herbs and be a fun night. Okay. But don't be frightened. There'll be <laughs> fruit. There'll be someone who's a bit knowledgeable in each group and then the rest of us will just paddle along. Mm. And uh, then we always have a very nice herb supper and a raffle of plants and a couple of books. Um, so it's usually a jolly day night. Excellent. And for anyone who doesn't know how to get to the Herb Society, you can look on herbsocietyvic.org.au on our website on um, activities 2018. There's those details. And on Facebook, though Facebook's a pain in the in the net because it uh, says we haven't got any activity but yes it says my my password's wrong but they're wrong <laughs> i heartily agree <laughs> and um uh yes it's 500 yarra boulevard um, richmond and you can get there by the swan street tram or power street it's quite near just over the bridge and um Oh, there's some works there. Um, you might have to be detour, but it's a detour within the Yarra, within the um, Burnley grounds. Right. Now, six o'clock, we're having a bring your own everything to share picnic at the sugar gum table, which is near the herb uh, garden at Burnley. Lovely. And if it's raining, of course, we'll migrate into the room at six o'clock. Okay. Earlier, okay. okay. And what time does the quiz start? The quiz starts 7.15 to 7.30. We ask people to come in 7.15 so they're ready for 7.30. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks very much, Pam. Fantastic, Jill. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up we're going to Sharon out in Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Oh, good morning, Pam. Um, look, I was thinking of planting a pomegranate tree. Right. And with that, I had three questions. Um, how drought tolerant are they? Incredibly, incredibly They're drought tolerant. They're as tough as tough. I, my, I associate pomegranates. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I spent half my life in the bush, and I associate pomegranates with old dilapidated with, with houses with their roofs off. And and uh, and the garden entirely gone, except for 
maybe an olive, and maybe a fig tree, <laughs> and and pomegranates. Pomegranates, pomegranates yep. especially. They they are incredibly drought tolerant. Uh, um, hmm, possibly grow to Alice Springs on natural rainfall. I'm not sure, but <laughs> close to it. Oh, that's good. Now, I I don't remember how tall they get either. Generally, quite small. Um, yeah, they, they, so they, they don't need a huge area. So would you say? Oh, uh, five six meters, and, yes. and sometimes smaller. There are dwarf varieties, but the the I think the best fruiting varieties, and there's uh, quite a few, and there's several that are becoming available now, uh, uh, producing really interesting uh, fruit. Um, well, I, well, five six meters, Pam. Oh yes, yes. Sorry, what did you say? Five to six meters, about twenty oh, feet. That's great. The other thing is, uh, Sharon, they can be hedged. I've seen, I've seen, mm. I've seen them hedged in great long rows in I, Italy. Yeah, and and I and and and, and, and as I'm sitting here thinking, um, they can be a bit straggly, and hedging them is actually a really, really good idea. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they still fruit breathe me well. Uh they were in flower when I was there. They weren't in fruit, so yep. but presumably, I mean, they were, they were yeah. certainly flowering. Hedging, uh, hedging, growing fruit trees in a hedge most probably just needs a little bit of figuring out. But certainly, uh, clipping them and shaping them is is really worthwhile. Mm. But I've, I've I've got one in the garden, only one. I haven't bothered to um, to uh, cut that back in any way, and and I quite like the. Um, the the form the yep. habit of it yep. because because it tends to almost have a, a slightly weeping effect and it's it's open you can see through it it's not dense um, but you it's it's such a I mean when when these bright bright um, vivid flowers are on it and and the same when the when the fruit is hanging on it really really attractive even if you don't want to uh, harvest the fruit and use the fruit it's a very very attractive tree to have in the garden. And a pretty handy one as well. There seems to be entire recipe books uh, that, that, that the pomegranate is the main ingredient nowadays. And I, I will say that uh, that the cockatoos love them oh, and yeah. the parrots. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't harvest them in time. <laughs> yeah. yes. well, look, I really wasn't after it so much for the fruit. What I wanted to do was block a um, northern window um, that gets far too hot over summer. And then, of course, I'd like the... Done in the winter. Yep. yep. And, and deciduous and, yes, and, deciduous and yellow so. autumn colour generally. Yes. Yeah. Now, the soil, that's the only other thing. I've got everything else, which doesn't need particularly. Well, I, 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 my suspicion is that anything other than wet soil, yep. they like it dry and they like a bit of drainage, and that's about it. They're not um, fussy at all. Yeah. I, look, I've seen them growing in sand, so I've seen them growing in fairly heavy soil. Oh, excellent! It ticks all my boxes. Well, I've got I've got fairly heavy clay, and that hasn't bothered it at all. Oh, great! Look, thank you very much, both of you. Okay, that's fine. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Uh, that number, if you'd like to phone in with a gardening question, nine four one nine zero one double five. We're running through till nine fifteen as usual. Um, in the studio this morning, we do have Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Uh, so we'd love to hear from you, 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. What yeah. else is looking stunning well, in the well, garden? It was interesting. We've just been talking about shaping trees, and that's something I do a lot in Cloud Hill, and, and it's a 
comes as a bit of a surprise to people and walking around trying to figure out what on earth they're looking at because um, things like Circus Canadensis Forest Pansy, which um, now we, we have one right beside uh, at the entrance to our restaurant, which we've allowed to grow up and forms a canopy, um, sort of a sun canopy over the entrance to the restaurant. And in that case, I've, um, we're pruning it to keep it up. And so <laughs> every every time it goes comes into leaf and a little bit of moisture everything it's 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 slightly pendulous in its growth around the periphery of its canopy and so i'm dashing around uh weight reducing uh the twigs so that people are not uh walking into the restaurant uh, uh, uh saturated yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, and, and uh, so that that happens two or three times uh in the spring early summer uh, on the other hand, we, we're growing the same tree in the borders, but doing exactly the opposite. There, we're, we're pollarding them almost, not okay. quite. We're, we're sort of cutting them back to two or three buds from the previous cut each time. So they do grow it a little bit each year, but taking them right back to a frame and, um, and then leaving them grow out and, and the consequence of that is rather than something that wants to grow up four or five metres by five or six metres, uh, we're keeping it to about um, two and a half, three metres mm. um, in height and across. And, but, and, and, and instead of a loose, slightly open canopy, we, we have a very tight mass of very lush foliage. Right. The leaves are much uh, bigger. And uh, glossy, and 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 the colour is extremely intense, and they, we we have two of these in the warm borders with lots of yellows and oranges and reds around. And in fact, when you look at the, the warm borders, the the, the colour is provided by shrubs and small trees as much as anything, and we use spireas and 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 um, fuzzacarpa starts golden, and the, the, these are all cut to the ground pretty well um, each year and um, grown purely for their foliage. Uh, and it goes on from there. There's, there's In the shrub borders, we're growing things like catalpas. We've, we have both the purple leaf and the golden leaf catalpa. Catalpa bignonioides um, aurea. And what's the purple one? Purple urea, perhaps. <laughs> I'm not too really sure. Maybe. But... but uh, but again, they're, they're actually pollarded. They're, they're, we, we cut them back to the kneecaps um, every winter. Right. Um, now, this works with amazing number of things. Uh, the ace and the gundo is always... Uh, now, the ace and the gundo, the, um, um, the, um, what the Americans call the box elder. It's not an elder at all. It's no, a no. maple, but the box maple it really should be. Um, now... Plant one of those and stand back, and it turns into this medium-sized, highly aggressive, uh, well, a tree with a highly aggressive root system, and and makes it gardening around it very difficult. Mm. But if you chop them back to uh, what a meter or so high, you turn it into a mass of this beautiful foliage, and 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 there's so many coloured leaf varieties, variegated varieties of the. Um, the um, the box maple, the box elder, uh, the catalpas, the same thing applies. The the golden catalpa wants to grow fifteen twenty meters high, uh, and then it gets up into the wind, and the hot winds damage the foliage. Yes, but yes. turn it into a shrub, and you got this lush mass of beautiful pristine foliage. And how much work is involved? It's, it's about five minutes' work with a lopping saw once a year. <laughs> oh, compared with the rose, it's 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 like falling off a log. Mm. 
um, and you know there are there's so many of these things actually that can be grown, um, but you just need a tiny bit of thought about where to place them and and and, uh, and then have a shed rule of cutting them back each winter. Mm-hmm. I think people are very nervous to to uh, to prune in that way. Yeah, well, it must probably the most interesting specimen is actually we've got a white beam. And uh, there's hardly any of these being propagated. It's the Sorbus area lutescens. So it's a silver, a silvery leaf selection of the uh, European white beam. The Sorbus, uh, oh, confusing because uh, the, the, the common name there is the mountain ash. <laughs> so, uh, but there's actually three different groups of Sorbus. Uh, they're deciduous trees and we don't want to confuse them with our with the proper mountain ash, no, no, so you no. could just ring them. So there's nothing like the the mountain ash, uh, but the the white beam is is um, has oval leaves with a with a little bit of a pleat in them, and covered in silvery hair, and it, the effect is 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 one of the most astonishing things in the garden. It does have one weakness: the pear slugs love it. Oh. <laughs> um, but I'm finding that growing one of these and cutting it right back each season, uh, it's strong enough to put on growth, which sort of outgrows the pear slugs. And the pear slugs, if you and you keep it as a shrub, then the pear slugs are a lot easier to deal with anyway. You'd, oh, of course. Yeah, they're yeah. not a difficult thing to 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 deal with, unless you've got a tree f- 15, 20 metres high, which is what the white beam wants to be. Mm. So if you plant a white beam and stand back, you end up with a rather bedraggled mess for most of the year. Um, but grow as a shrub and, and cut it back each winter, you, you have this in, in phenomenally beautiful, um, silvery, intensely silvery shrub, uh, say head high or so. Mm-hmm. Mm. How do you deal with the um, pear and cherry slug? Uh, well, uh, it's, um, it's just a case of desiccating them, isn't it? And throwing ashes over them. As, well, that's, that's, that's yeah. what I do, just throwing some wood ash over them. Yep. Which is why you don't need the tree to be too high, or you yep. just can't yeah, physically exactly. get up it's there. Exactly right. So, yep. yeah, so that's that's why it's important to to. Um, I mean, there are some lovely things which are really the, the pear slugs really go for, and unfortunately, this is one. Yes. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but there's ways of dealing with it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, what I mean. You go through all the different seasons. What, uh, looking at a whole year of, of, of all your different, um, because you, ha- you go through different plantings for your borders and everything, what do you find one of the biggest challenges you have in the garden to deal with? Is it, is it, is it all the pruning, the cutting back that has to be done? All the time, um, or, or is it more uh, in the design area, trying to think through well, what else fi- you can figuring add? Well, figuring out the design. I, I, I must say, uh, the design still bothers me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that, in fact, the shed rule of gardening is is not. Uh, I mean, one of the great gardens, one of the great arts and crafts gardens, is Sissinghurst. And uh, Sissinghurst is made around an old Tudor mansion, which was um, um, which was pulled apart by French prisoners of war during the Napoleon, during the, the Napoleonic Wars, which went on and on and on. And as the 
<laughs> as the, the British won the occasional battle, they'd, they'd take French prisoners and a lot of them ended up uh, uh, held as prisoners in, in Sissinghurst Castle. It wasn't really a castle, it was the old... Uh, it's more like Hampton Court. It was an old manor house, but huge. And the French had years and years and years to completely wreck it, <laughs> which they did. And at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, they, 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 it was down to just walls and, and, a, and a rather lovely gatehouse in the middle, which is now the tower. And when Vita Sackville West and Harold Nixon took it on in 1930 or so, they... Uh, I uh, cleaned out all the rubbish and and filled up the old rooms of this 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 huge old manor house with um, flowers and turned okay. it into one of the most uh, successful arts and crafts gardens of all. It's it's arguably the uh, the jewel in the crown of the, the English National Trust. Their 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 catalogue of gardens and and uh, so the, 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 uh, I mean, the, that that's. Uh, um, I mean, that, that's the ultimate to, to have a backdrop of uh, 400-year-old Tudor walls oh, gosh, <laughs> yes. for your parts. <laughs> uh, in our case, we managed to find some um, um, second-hand brick, but beautiful old handmade brick uh, mm. from a hotel that was pulled down uh, from the gold rush times of the 1860s. And so we've used fragments of that and as a backdrop for the garden. And... Um, but even now, we're just talking about uh, that same problem of persuading people to explore the garden. Uh, there's, there's, there's one path right in the middle which most people missed, and um, and I've been looking that, at that over the last two years and thinking, well, the, the plants I put in 10, 15 years ago are actually doing quite well. There's a stunning Enchianthus perillatus and one of the um, plants that came in from Japan in the early days. So it's a really significant historic plant. And that was moved to this spot, oh, 20 years ago. And, and, uh, and over the years has really done well. Mm-hmm. And hardly anyone sees it. So we, okay, we need to accentuate this part of the garden. And um, so we set up a, a plinth at one end of this walk and we're going to move a piece of sculpture to that point, which will have the consequence that as people walk along to the end of the main terrace and then face with this awful dilemma, do I just turn around and walk back again, or do I follow this path which rockets off down the hill, or, or another one which 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 forces me to climb up a steep hill? Yeah. <laughs> or they can turn around and, and off to their left, they'll see uh, the rear of this sculpture, and and the, and it's and and it's one of so it'll be a temporary piece by Graham Foot, uh, and so one of his terracotta, uh, one of his um, ceramic, um, eminent women series. So we we've, in fact, dare I say, there's two 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 pieces we can use in that spot, and they are temporary. They belong to Graham, <laughs> but one of them is, dare I say, Dame Elizabeth Murdoch. All oh, right. Um, and the other one is Christine Nixon. Okay. And they both work in this spot, so we'll have one and maybe the other, depending on what happens with Dame Elizabeth. Um, but but they're, they're rather handsome pieces and done from life. And, and there's Dame Elizabeth. At the moment, she's sitting on the little patch of grass beside our restaurant, and, and, um, but it's not an ideal spot. 
and she's sitting and holding a little cushion with her hands and smiling, beaming away, as she always did. Um, and it was done a few months after she turned 100. Okay. And beaming away, and the, the cushion, of course, is one of those things you throw into microwave and zap for a minute or two, and if you've got a problem with arthritis, well, you have one of these things, and then you carry on beaming, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's a it's a it's just a lovely piece. So she can be the uh, the um, genius of the garden at the end of this walk, and 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 but the having the piece there will serve to call attention to this path, mm. and people walk along the path, and then they spot there's a little patch of Virginian rose, Rose Virginiana, which is um, it's one of those suckering species with. Um, Rather uh, nice glossy green foliage and it's a simple little pink single flower, but really um, quite good autumn colour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the, one of the small number of roses you can that justify their spot in the autumn. They they turn red and yellow and orange. Great the, the leaves. Um, a little bit further along, we have um, the um, uh, one of the um, Russes from America. Oh, yes. Uh, Typhinia laciniata. Um, now, the Russes are kind of an interesting group. Um, and uh, the, 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 this is a suckering plant with rather handsome dissected foliage and stunningly good autumn colour and rather interesting flowers as well. And it's quite a safe plant is the main thing. It's safe. Um, the problem with the Russes is they were bundled up with the toxic codendrons. Uh, uh, up until a few years ago when someone had the bright idea of separating the two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you, yeah, the, I mean, the, the, this is really interesting, but the, uh, the, the, um, the toxicodendrons, well, you think, wow, that sounds slightly, uh, suspicious. Uh, a group of plants, um, called, with beginning toxicodendron, um, uh, they include uh, poison ivy. Right. They include some of the nastiest yes. plants on earth. Yes. Um, I, thought, I remember reading a statistic. Uh, poison ivy is really common throughout the United States, and the number of Americans who have become highly allergic to this. Really. And uh, to the point that they can, uh, they they dare not step into the woods because this stuff is everywhere, and touching it will set up a oh. uh, allergic reaction, which Goodness. is quite devastating. Yeah. And it's quite a high percentage of the, well, surprisingly a high percentage of the population. Right. That's something we don't want. No, exactly. I, I, I might add, it was imported into Victoria and it was grown in one or two collections You're for a joking. while until, uh, until people decided, no, this is not a good idea. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it does have spectacular autumn colour. Um, I think we can live with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the Chinese wax plant is similar. Yes. And, and that is one that you still see in old gardens. And there's one just down the road from us, uh, which hangs out over a bank and is stunning every late autumn, uh, um, turns brilliant, uh, crimson. Um, but dangerous plants. Mm. The russes, on the other hand, are closely related, but now there's quite a few of these in the United States too. And one of them, the Americans called the lemonade bush. Um, why? Well, because they collect the, the buds and brew up a, a drink which uh, tastes rather like lemonade. Good heavens. Yeah. 
So, obviously not toxic. No. <laughs> I think so, you know by yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, as I said, these, these two groups, rather, both rather similar, both, uh, both, all of them are nice garden plants in a way, but including a couple of absolutely frightening men- yeah. menaces, they have been pulled apart. Right. And so, don't plant anything with Toxicodendron in its name, no, please. No, 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 no. Yep. Yeah. And, and then finally, uh, well, well, there's a, a few sun lovers, and then, then this magnificent um, Enchianthus perillatus um, that came in from Japan, uh, part of the a batch of plants from Yokohama from uh, oh, about 100 years back, so it's coming up 100 years old. Okay. And, and this, the plant we have now, I'm looking at photographs in, in old Japanese temple gardens, and ours is pretty well the same size oh, and the really? same quality. Wow. Yeah, so it's really quite special. And as I said, no, nine people out of ten walking around the garden have missed it because it's 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 on a, one of the it's little on, yeah, side yeah, okay. track, which, yeah. and, and you know, you do need to walk on all the paths, people, but people <laughs> get a bit confused. And so, I mean, so it's not their fault. It's my fault because the design wasn't right. So we just need to... Something to call Something attention to, to the, the path itself. Yes. It's quite a, there's, we've got about, well, I mean, to, to illustrate, there's about five paths running east-west and five paths running north-south. They're intersecting and at the intersections where we have the spaces. And when you think about the configuration of the garden, it's quite complicated. Mm. Some of it's simple, but some of it's quite complicated and, and very few people manage to find every path, mm. but that's our fault. We've got to improve the layout. So that, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. How do we improve the layout? Yep. Well, using a little, using something like a tiny piece of sculpture at one end of a path is one way. Yep. Yep. Mm. For sure. Yep. Which, could, which, which brings me back to the fact that uh, you um, quite often have um, have a big sculpture exhibition, a temporary. Um, yeah, we, we, exhibition we, in the garden. Do yeah, you we, we, on we, we haven't. Uh, we, we we the last one was with Anton Brunsmar uh, from Queensland, and he had a collection of um, sandstone uh, pieces, uh, rather interesting sandstone pieces, and we we've souvenir one for the garden. Okay. Um, uh, La Cheval, uh, the the arrogant horse. All right. <laughs> <laughs> which which again highlights the end of one of our. Paths, uh, the axis, and, and, and encourages people to walk all the way from one end of the garden, one side of the garden, to the other. They see this in the distance, trying to figure out what it is, and as they get up to it, they say, oh, yeah, interesting. And we've got it sitting ar- around um, in, in the midst of some Japanese tree peonies, and that's, that's slightly obscure, perhaps, the connection, except that Japanese tree peonies are the most the most spectacular and irritating of all plants, I feel. <laughs> Why irritating? Oh, not easy to grow, and they flower for about five days a year. And <laughs> but they, but when they flower, they are magnificent. So, so we have this arrogant horse sculpture in the middle of the Japanese tree peonies. Because, of course, for Melburnians, um, tree peonies were the only peonies we could grow without yeah, urban climate. Yeah, and, and, and they, they, uh, the uh, better ones are their lutea hybrids. Uh, they're easier to propagate and, and much more robust, longer flowering. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Um, just going back to sculpture, we, we, we had EMR um, staying with us just a few days ago. Right. And... Um, um, and we and we will actually use one of his pieces in the same walk with 
the name Elizabeth Walk, dare I say. Um, and uh, that's a project which will happen in a couple of weeks' time. Okay. And, um, but Ian is in New South Wales. Um, interesting bloke. His garden is featured in Christine Reed's uh, new book, oh, the new Gardens book. on the Edge. Gardens on the Edge, yes. Okay. And boy, oh boy, uh, and uh, Ian Ma's family, uh, they're right on the edge at Wilcannia in western New South Wales on the Darling River. Right. And they, they had a station there. And um, very interesting. Um, Ian is just fascinating to chat with, and it's typical of him that somehow he arranged that his family should live on the same station as one of Charles Dickens' sons. Good heavens! Now, yeah, now most people are not aware that Charles Dickens actually had two sons that came and lived in Australia, but. Yep. That was the case. There you go. And one of them lived on this station at uh, Wilcannia. Okay. Um, and um, a, a typical of EMR. Um, EMR is a letter cutter. Now, what is that? That that is someone who carves text into stone. Stone. Yeah. And generally, what he uses uh, is a slate from South Australia. Beautiful material for carving. Poetry for carving a few lines of uh, quotes uh, yep. into, um, uh, and and he sometimes uses sandstone as well, but that's not quite so durable. No. Um, and so we we have a number of his pieces scattered around the gardens, and again it's a reference to yet another garden in uh, this time in Scotland called Little Sparta, okay, made by another Ian uh, Ian Hamilton Finlay. And uh, most probably one of the most interesting gardens made in the last 50 years. Made between, made in a, around an old farmhouse, quite a small garden, um, a little Scottish farmhouse in the Pentland Hills south of Edinburgh and, and uh, farm buildings, t- uh, just three or four acres. And it's full of hundreds and hundreds of pieces of text. Hamilton Finlay was actually a poet, but he was a concrete poet. He didn't write page after page of page after page of poetry. He wrote two or three words at a time, and somehow the material um, that that the, the the words were the way the words were written was was part of the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and so in a one, one way he's a gardener, in another way he's a poet. Okay. Or he was. He yep. died some years back. Yeah. Um, and uh, for instance, um, he planted a birch tree in the in the in his garden and put a little piece of text carved in some wood. Um, Bring back the birch, okay. which is kind of can be read in several different ways. <laughs> and and uh, that that was typical of Hamilton Finlay. Uh, he, the, his whole garden is filled with it. I suppose I had a bit of an interest in this area from a long time back and curiously enough there's another connection with Sissinghurst here because uh, Vita Sackville West, uh, the, one of the two people who made Sissinghurst and the, and the plants person of the partnership was a poet and actually okay. wrote a book called The Garden Okay. and you were talking about the shed rule of gardening a few minutes ago. Yeah. You could read The, the Garden uh, which goes on, I might add, for about 60, 70 pages. So the, this is a serious poem. Um, I'm trying to think whether... No, she didn't win the Hawthornden Prize for this. She won it for another poem, long poem, epic poem she wrote called The Land, which was about farming, mm-hmm. farming in Kent. 
um, but the um, the 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 the, um, <coughs> the garden goes through the year, and it's a blueprint for how you should allocate your time um, gardening in Sissinghurst, <laughs> if you like, right. which kind of works a bit for Cloud Hill. Yeah. Um, and uh, we just have to allow that the seasons are completely haywire. But apart from that, apart from that small thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, does, it, it does make sense. Hedge clipping at the moment. Uh, the previous uh, 10, 12 weeks, we're flat out preparing the borders for the summer. Um, during the winter, we're doing big clean-ups of all the groups, uh, of all the shrubs, the trees, right around the periphery of the garden mm-hmm. and just general maintenance. So, Ian... Is Ian going mm. to be coming Ian, down? Yep, to, going back to, to Ian. Yeah, he's he's coming down in a couple of weeks' time, and he'll be and working again. working on a piece. So yes. we'll put that on the website. We're still not too sure exactly when, and with Ian, we won't be sure until about two days beforehand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but we'll put it on the website yep. and get out to get it out as soon as we're confident. Terrific. And so he'll be working on a piece. Um, he's one of these people who's quite happy. He, he generally works in our car park and he's tipping away and he's working for a day or two. And the, and the carving process is just amazing. It's a traditional craft mm-hmm. going back two or three thousand years. Yep. Greeks and the Romans did this with, with their marble. And they've been doing it in England on, uh, especially in churchyards for a long time. And Ian does do the occasional memorial piece. Yep. He's actually, dare I say, bringing down a memorial piece okay. uh, with him in two weeks' time, which will end up in Emerald and, and commemorating a, a, a gentleman who died. And I've actually seen the piece before Ian's completed it, and it's a piece of South Australian slate with a beautiful mottle over it, mm. and it has the, the gentleman's name and his dates. Very simple. He was in the um, navy, and uh, and and above his name and dates, there's an anchor and a piece of rope twined around the anchor, Lovely. and that's got to be carved out of a piece of slate. Yes. So wow. it, it's um, so um, so that'll end up in emerald. For yep. And we'll, <laughs> anyone interested will 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 point out where it is. Okay. But there's actually two or three of these already there. Fantastic. Mm. Brilliant. All right, let's get to some of these calls. We have uh, Claire in Carlton. Good morning, Claire. Oh, good morning. Um, can I ask a question about planting a tree in a very difficult area? Sure. I have a, a bluestone wall on the street, which is about six feet tall, and in the street there are plane trees. And unfortunately, the man came along and cut off a big branch off the plane tree, which wasn't interfering, I should say, as an aside with the electrical wiring, but anyway, and it came over and sheltered the front of our house in the summer. So, now, what, 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 uh, before we go any further, what direction is the wall facing and where, where is the tree from you? Is it, it's uh, on the west side of, of your house, is it? Uh, yeah, northwest. Yes. Northwest, okay, yep, so, and, summer sh- and anyway, uh, so afternoon the shade. Off, they cut the branch off, so I'm thinking of planting a tree in the garden between the bluestone fence and unfortunately a very small area that's only about 18 inches wide oh, hmm. before it meets the um, paving, the slate paving. But what I wanted to do is to be deciduous and also to provide rather quickly some shelter 
in the summer for the front of the house. Yes, um, the, 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 um, you, you need to look around and figure out where the root run of the tree is going to be. So the slate paving, the slate paving needs to be uh, on on fairly good footings um, to be sure that whatever you plant doesn't damage the paving. And and, and then this bluestone fence you were saying, which is going to be on footings as well, and and whether or not the tree can get its roots out underneath this and out into the uh, nature's tree, it's, it's the next little puzzle. Uh, it it sounds slightly tricky. Um, my I'm I'm thinking possibly of something like a lagostromia, uh, which are extremely um, adaptable uh, small trees. And you'd need to start with something a little size. The beauty of those is they really lend themselves to shaping, um, and um, and you need to get it up above that um, stone wall as quickly as possible. So two meters, you really need something which is a good two meters high already. So it's an advanced like it's dromy or something like that. How do you spell that one? Um, L A G E R S T R O E M I A, I think. And is that a deciduous one? Yes, deciduous. Beautiful in the um, winter because they have polished, uh, fluted stems, so polished bark, and with quite often with uh, with dappled bark and and fluted stems. So it's it's almost at its best in winter, I'll find. Um, and and it extremely will tough. Shade in the summer. Yeah, it will. Uh, yes, it will. Um, it's, uh, How long will it take to grow, do you think? Well, that's the thing. They're, they're slow to medium growing, so you need something of a size already. Mm. Um, otherwise, it's something fast growing and, and uh, reasonably narrow, I suspect. It really, you really have to look at the space and figure out um, the plant you, you grow and think of how it's going to grow over the next three years, five years, 15, 25 years. Mm. Oh, well, I won't be here for that long. Oh, yes, but think of your, <laughs> think of your uh, the next person who has the place. Exactly. Yes, we, we all have to do that. Mm. Okay, righty-o. Well, look, thanks very much for that. I'll just um, press on to the nursery and see yep. if I can get and explain, ex- and explain all the parameters to the, uh, all the details so, uh, as mu- exactly as much as you can, as uh, uh, much information as you can to the nursery and, and, um, and they'll, they'll help. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Right, next up we're going to uh, uh, Andrea out in Caulfield North. Good morning, Andrea. Oh, good morning. Thanks, Pam. Um, Jeremy, I was really interested in your discussion about pollarding um, shrubs and small trees. Yeah. I actually wonder, I've got three um, liriodendron um, tulip trees in a almost like a large perennial bed. It's a very big, large perennial bed, and they provide beautiful um, height, vertical height through this bed, but they're getting a bit too tall. And well, they want to be a huge tree. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, well, I know. They want to be a huge tree. Um, can you pollard liriodendron? Interesting point. I, I, now, they're, they're in, in the magnolias. They're, they're a magnoliaceae. Yeah. And in fact, they're an interesting tree. They're, they're, a, they're, they're, the, they're arguably the first flowering tree. Um, and so they're incredibly old. Now, all the magnolias can be pruned. Um, oh, yeah. And I suspect they're the liriogenderans likewise. So you'll just have to try and see. But, um, but if I pull, if we did. But, but you really need to do it in winter. But, I, yeah, but, of course, yeah, but what now, size are these now? 
They're about, oh, probably about, um, oh, let me think. They're probably about five metres, maybe now. Yeah, you really need to get, a, get much taller than no, that. No, no, you need to, and you need to take them back quite a bit, um, and most probably next winter, I'd, I'd yeah, think. Yeah, so you can bring them back quite a bit. Look, you'd have to experiment. You might have to try one and see how it responds, and then, then okay. try the other two. But, right. uh, but three in a small space, they, they, those are huge trees. They, they want to grow 30, 50 metres high. Yeah, I know, I know. Mm. <laughs> I did talk to somebody about this when they yep. were put in, but they're meant to be Okay, thank you very much. We'll give it a go. Okay. okay. Thanks for your help. Good luck. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up we have Michael out in Forest Hill. Good morning, Michael. Oh, good day, good day, good day, good day. Look, um, I'm just... Um, just interested in um, collecting uh, seed from eucalypts. Um, uh, you know, um, I'm just wondering when the, when the best time is for that, if there is a best time, um, and grow, you know, and just propagating from seed. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, this is uh, th- 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 yeah, this this is a really big subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I think my suspicion is eucalypts, because yeah, there's such a I, wide I range of trees, they, they, yeah. um, they're yeah. going to, uh, it's going to be very tremendously on the species. Yeah. Um, uh, for yeah. instance, I know that the local eucalyptus regnans simply has seed, um, held in its, uh, buds, right. um, uh, each summer. And, uh-huh. uh, waiting for a bushfire to go through, and as soon as yeah. bushfire goes through, it goes. It, they drop the seed into the ash. The, the, the yeah. trees are killed by the fire, and the, the seedlings take over. So that's one yeah. strategy. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure others will be dropping seed uh, much more readily than the uh, regnants do. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. you really, you need to go to um, one of the uh, indigenous uh, nurseries. Yeah, go to the indigenous nursery um, or Vink, for instance, yeah. and they they might be able to help you much more specifically. Mm. Right. Commercial beekeepers are generally pretty good too, but 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 the obvious people are the uh, indigenous nurseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, Karanga, yeah. Karanga uh, yeah, near Karanga us is, is just brilliant. Try and ring them as well. They yeah. they might be able to give yeah. you some advice as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I did ask uh, a couple of weeks ago about it. But it's, it's just you know we, we're getting a lot of spotted gums dropping uh, seeds right at the moment, and they're they're pretty ideal around here. This mm. sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the plants in your area, you, you're quite right too. Plants in your area, they're, they're keeping the gene pool local is, yeah. is important. And and Karanga yeah. will know whether you need to do something like um, smoke water or. Yeah. You know, so I'd, I'd I'd try and get some some more advice from either, as I said, an indigenous nursery or Karanga. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just trying to trying to sort of get it done. Uh, you know, ASAP. Before, yep. You know, this while this. You know, we get we're, we're sort of getting this in, in, interesting weather sure. sort of thing. Well, you know? Karanga will certainly be there today if you want to give yeah. them a call. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I'll do that. Okay. okay Thank then. you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Uh, now, uh, we're just about out of time. Very quickly, uh, Mark in Gisborne has got two Maya lemon trees. One is three years old, the other is 18 months old. Both trees are very healthy, are fertilised and also have been uh, given potash. They're near each other. The younger tree has plenty of lemons, but the three-year-old uh, tree flowers. The fruit develops, but then it falls off. 
Well, lemons do. If 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 they have a lemons always shed a lot of their fruit because lemon yep. trees produce much too many yes. flowers for um, a harvest that the tree can support. So, um, a fruit drop is you know fairly typical of lemon trees. If if the older tree has had way too many flowers, I would suggest next time taking off, pruning off, taking off some of those um, flowers so to have um, less to develop and that might help uh, the fruit hold on the tree. Can you think of any other reason, Jeremy? Not really, without seeing the, the two trees. So yeah. the, the chances are it'll settle down over the next two or three years. Yes. Yeah. I'm afraid we've run out of time for yet another week. Um, a huge thank you to Doug and Liz who've been handling all the phone calls this morning. We will be back again, of course, uh, next week at 7.30. A big thank you to Jeremy who's been fielding all the, uh, all the show this morning, but we will be back 7.30 next week. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.